So for me, few airport approaches are as appealing as San Francisco. Flying in from the east, planes will sometimes pass above the Sierra, including Yosemite National Park, and quickly descend over the bay and land to the north, sometimes with a beautiful city view. On departure, depending on your destination, one can occasionally fly over the Golden Gate Bridge. In between, San Francisco International has a cool museum with interesting exhibits scattered around the airport. And they've got pretty good food, too, for an airport. Uh, So amidst COVID-19, I wondered what's happening at the airports many of us are familiar with. I reached out to SFO, and I'm pleased to introduce Doug Yakel, an industry veteran and currently the airport's public information officer. Doug, thank you for joining us today, and maybe you can give us a bit of background. You're an industry veteran. Tell us how you arrived at SFO in 2020. Absolutely, and uh, thanks for having me, Jim. So I'm a, I'm a person that's always been interested in aviation. Uh, uh, growing up, I lived under the arrival pattern of my local airport, so I could stand out in the front of my yard and watch airplanes come in to land and try and guess what type of airplane they were, or what airline. So uh, something that's always been of interest, and I've had the good fortune to work at a lot of different airports uh, across the U.S., about 10 in total, but most of my time in California at either SFO or LAX airport. I worked for United Airlines for many years, uh, managing airport operations. And then I was part of the team that launched Virgin America Mm. at San Francisco back in 2007. So uh, for me, uh, being at the airport is is an enjoyable experience. And uh, I joke with people, I uh, I go to the airport every day and I never go anywhere, but that's the way that I like it. So I, I, I flew through a, a couple of weeks ago um, to move our youngest and, uh, you know, the airport, I, I've never seen something like that. You know, the airport was, um, well, you know, quiet would be an overstatement, I guess. Um, so wh- what should travelers expect? You know, what, when they arrive, I mean, what, what, how should they prepare for travel today and through the rest of the year, uh, Doug? Well, you touched on probably the first thing that that travelers should expect, and that is a lot less activity than what they're used to seeing. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're at a point right now where we're only seeing about 8% of the amount of passenger activity that we would normally see at this time of year. So the the terminals continue to be dramatically quiet, uh, and that's probably the first thing. Uh, the, The next are some of the things that are Uh, becoming regular expectations in every aspect of society right now you'd expect to see at the airport as well. And obviously one of them is uh, facial coverings. It's a requirement that all passengers and employees at our airport wear facial masking or facial covering at all times. And we've actually got uh, booths set up at each of our terminals to pass them out for free. And we're giving out about 300 masks a day, both to employees and to passengers. And we're uh, seeing very good adoption of this as we measure it. We see about 95% usage, which is great. That's great, yeah. Uh, The other thing I think you could expect to see is a lot of provisions around physical distancing. And uh, that's really gonna be a challenge as airports get busier and start returning back to normal volumes. Uh, but you can expect to see uh, physical distancing markers on the ground at 
check-in areas, at security checkpoints, in baggage claim areas. You'll see them in seating areas, and this is all designed to help passengers maintain that minimum distance from one another while we're dealing with this pandemic. I think another thing you can expect to see is a real focus on cleanliness and hygiene. And for our airport, uh, cleanliness has always been an area that we've been very highly rated, uh, but we've been taking it to a new level. The level of cleaning and disinfection that's happening right now uh, is at a point that it's never been at before in terms of using electrostatic sprayers, defoggers, other types of uh, touchless cleaning devices uh, to keep our airport clean and sanitized. And then helping passengers to, to maintain good hand hygiene as well. We've installed hundreds of hand sanitizers throughout the airport. Uh, and then you'll also see some plastic barriers, these clear plexiglass barriers in place where face-to-face -face interactions might be necessary at a information booth or possibly at a security checkpoint. So those are some of the, the high-level things that you could expect to see walking in right now. So what about if I'm checking bags? What should we expect for that? So the process is, is today fairly similar, but I think in the days, weeks, and months to follow, there's going to be some other changes that come to air travel, and one of them will be a real focus on touchless transactions. In other right. words, uh, allowing you to do all the transactions that you need to do using an app on your mobile phone or on the computer before you come out to the airport. Uh, really, airlines and airports are working hard to reduce the places where you actually need to touch something during the travel experience. So I expect we'll see more on that uh, in the months to come. Mm. And what about uh, transport, you know, getting to and from uh, SFO? Obviously, you have uh, BART, you have... Um, mm -hmm all the shared services and then rental cars and buses. And so anything changing or any expectations we should have on that? that sure. So uh, it, it is a bit of a shift for us because we've always been an airport that normally would advocate for public transit first right. to get to and from the airport. Uh, but given some of those physical distancing considerations, we're looking at ways to uh, make it easier or more or more of an incentive for people to take a private vehicle once again. Uh, so we do f find ourselves in a, in a place that we haven't been in a while. Uh, but also we need to consider about how people get around our airport. We have a light rail system and we're working on methods of uh, physical distancing within these uh, light rail cars because uh, that's really how people are going to get to a rental car center, how they're going to get between terminals, how they're going to get to our hotel. Uh, so one of the things that we're doing is adding the number of cars that make up each train uh, that go from station to station so that passengers have uh, an increased likelihood of finding an empty or a very open car to get onto. Yeah, that, that makes sense. You know, typically pre-March, <laughs> sometimes those could be, you know, quite full. I, I can yes. see that. Uh, I can see that issue. Um, and what about the airport itself? So obviously lots of changes over the last decade and even beyond that, the international terminal early and then, you know, you've made um, quite a few updates to the uh, different terminals. So what's happening in terms of, uh, are the airlines moving around where, where they're operating? Are there uh, new entrants uh, coming in or what, what's happening with the, the, the facility itself? Yeah, so uh, for the short term, we've actually been contracting our footprint at the airport 
and uh, really reducing the number of security checkpoints that are open. Uh, we've got in our international terminal two concourses and we've closed one of them and consolidated all of the flight activity in the remaining concourse. And the level of flight activity is so light right now that uh, there's still plenty of room, plenty of space for everyone. Uh, but eventually we'll reach a point where we need to reactivate that other terminal and uh, begin restoring service to uh, some of these security checkpoints that we've closed. Well, one of the other things we've been focused on is what construction activity that was already underway uh, should continue and what should be put on hold. And most of our projects are moving forward. We just opened another section of Harvey Milk Terminal 1, mm. and that project will move forward. But we did make a decision to postpone a very large renovation of Terminal 3, where United operates. Right. This was about a $1 billion construction project. And although we had done some of the behind-the-scenes design work, uh, we were getting ready this month to begin physical construction, and we made the decision to postpone that project by a good six months or more. And that's really a function of the reduced passenger demand. There's simply not a need for a project like that. So if we don't need to take on the debt associated with a construction project of that scale, uh, we'd rather push that uh, that financial burden further down the road until a time when a passenger activity rebounds to a point where it's really needed again. Right. So in terms of um, passenger experiences, I've sort of looked around the world a bit and, you know, there's some places, you know, Hong Kong that's doing, uh, I guess, far more intensive screening in terms of, you know, temperature and, um, and maybe other things for international arrivals. Do you see some of those things arriving? I mean, I've read that some of the TSA screenings in the U.S. are installing temperature and other checks. Is that happening at SFO or what, what's going on with that? It hasn't happened yet, but uh, we've been working as an airport industry to really help guide that discussion. And, and really, we're not health experts, so we're not the ones to dictate what, what's the right measure to put in place our real objective is that we see a consistent standard across the United States. Uh, and we'd expect that uh, whatever health-related process goes into affected U.S. airports be something that is managed on a federal level and staffed on a federal level and is consistent wherever you go. So travelers can expect the same process regardless of what airport they're at. There's still a good bit of debate in terms of what is the right set of measures to apply. And, uh, you know, we saw some experience with the, with the screening of international arriving passengers from uh, certain hot zones around the world as the pandemic was, was escalating. And I think that there's still some skepticism about whether or not temperature checks are really a, uh, an effective method of, of ensuring a traveler's health, especially when we're facing a pandemic where so much transmission is asymptomatic. So uh, again, we defer to the health experts to determine what is an appropriate measure. We do expect that some type of health process will uh, be laminated into the, the airport process probably in the, in the months to come this year. And how about international traffic? Is there any, when, when I landed a few weeks ago, I received a notification on my iPhone that said, you know, if, you're, if you've been traveling internationally, uh, make sure you self-quarantine for 14 days. So I, that was interesting. I don't know if that's Apple doing that or if that's AT&T or 
working with the airport, but that was one thing. And then second, um, so it made me curious about what international traffic is like today, if at all. Yeah, in, international traffic remains very light. And, you know, we are seeing some slight increases in domestic activity, mm-hmm. uh, but domestic remains very limited. We've had some airlines uh, resuming limited international service, but it's important to remember that there are still a lot of uh, federal restrictions on who can enter the United States. So, uh, places like China, Iran, the Schengen area, for example, uh, all, all of these areas, foreign nationals are not allowed to enter the U.S. It's only U.S. citizens. And those individuals, as you ex- experienced, uh, need to self-quarantine for 14 days if they've been in any of those areas. So there's still a lot of restrictions in place that are a bit of a deterrent for international carriers resuming full service. Uh, a lot have been operating cargo only flights because there's certainly a demand for that Uh, but we are now just this month seeing some airlines convert that into passenger activity once again and and really this is a reaction to uh, locations and areas that are starting to scale back the restrictions that they had in place so um, but we think we've got a long ways to go on the international front before we'll see anything like what we saw in terms of activity pre-pandemic right One of my favorite activities, as I mentioned uh, when arriving, is checking out the latest museum exhibits. So how how did that start? Give us some background on SFO's, you know, great airport museum initiatives. Tell us about that, uh, Doug. So airports tend to compete with one another in terms of the unique amenities that they have. And the museum program at SFO is certainly one that we've been proud of for a long time. And we remain the only U.S. airport that has its own accredited museum program, which means that we actually employ our own uh, curators and exhibitionists. And uh, our team comes up with the concepts that will be on display Uh, And this is something that really goes back about 30 years. It was about 1980 that the the airport established a museum program. And then finally in the late 80s, uh, got the program accredited uh, to the standard that it's at today. And it's really divided into two things. You have a brick and mortar uh, facility that's more focused on aviation history and the display of aviation memorabilia. But then in every single terminal, you have galleries in each of those locations that have rotating exhibits. And those exhibits are not always aviation related. Sometimes they're uh, pop culture, sometimes they're arts and crafts. I know that uh, one of my favorites was in the International Terminal. It was in a collection of uh, vintage Italian uh, motorcycles. So uh, needless to say, that exhibit was under lock and key throughout the uh, duration of its run. Uh, very, very cool. So who who decides, you know, what the exhibits are? What, what What's the process for that? Sure. So we have a team that we call SFO Museum. And this group is actually the team that uh, develops the content for each of the exhibits. And typically an exhibit will run for about six months. And they work with uh, various lenders and organizations and maybe a uh, a set of content is rotating out of a museum somewhere else and is available and we'll look for a way to slot that in. And then there's also times where the exhibit may be specific to a particular cause. A great example is the the new Harvey Milk Terminal 1, which has a fantastic exhibit really talking about the life and legacy of Harvey Milk. So there are times where 
it's intentional, it's more long-term, and it really serves a larger purpose. But really the goal throughout all of them is to, to inform, to educate, to, to surprise and delight, and maybe give travelers something they weren't expecting to see at the airport. And I think it very much does that. It's, it's, I hope so. It's a delight. It's a delight. So when you think about SFO, I, I remember living in the Bay Area now many years ago. Um, you know, how, how pre-pandemic, how did you see traffic and travel patterns evolve over the years? And then I'm just wondering how you see that returning over the next, let's say, two to five years. Mm-hmm. So we saw a very um, uh, strong growth at SFO in about the 10 years leading up to the pandemic. And initially it was led by uh, some strong domestic growth. Virgin America's decision to make their headquarters in SFO triggered a period of real competition amongst domestic carriers. And uh, that was really good for passengers because it drove the the average fares down. (laughs) Over the last couple of years, uh, more of the growth has been on the international side. And a lot of it's been driven by the the economic health of the Bay Area and the interest that airlines have in, in establishing a presence if they hadn't already in uh, in the Bay Area. Some new aircraft are also supporting this aircraft like the Boeing 787 Dreamliner really operate at a level of efficiency that made routes that might have previously been unprofitable suddenly make financial sense for airlines. And so we saw a lot of of new routes being developed in the international sector as a result of the efficiencies that that came from that aircraft. Our mix of domestic and international has always been kind of the same. I I looked 20 years ago and it was about 80-20, about 80% domestic, 20% international. And in 2019, it was about the same. It was about 75-25. So I think moving forward, uh, it'll be interesting to see the way that it develops. I mean, what we're seeing right now is the initial traffic that's recovering is domestic and it's leisure travel. It's friends and family visiting people that they haven't seen for a while. Uh, but I think it'll be a, a slower recovery for business travel as a lot of companies from liability perspective will simply have their workforce stay at home. Uh, and then obviously some of these international restrictions, we see the international recovery taking a lot longer. We would be happy if we reached the end of this year at 50% of the traffic that we had at the end of last year. We think it's gonna take that long. We think it'll probably take a good two to three years for traffic levels to return back to where they were at the end of 2019. And some of this really remains to be seen whether or not we see a long-term permanent impact on categories like business travel, whether or not, now that we're all getting so good at Zoom, uh, whether or not that supplants uh, business travel. A lot of our activity is uh, between Northern and Southern California. About 30% of all of our flying is to Southern California. And uh, we were uh, were seeing very strong uh, growth there right now, kind of a a resumption of service. But still, uh, you know, pre-pandemic, we'd have about 80 flights a day to Southern California. And now we're only at about 30. So we've still got a ways to go. Interesting. Do you, you know, since you have the the Virgin America experience, I'm kind of curious, you know, if if you see – anyone sniffing around on new business model opportunities. We've seen that in many other industries and in the airline industry, you know, pre pandemic, obviously there was just a huge growth in fees. Um, 
many years ago when I worked for a large company, we used uh, Americans Air Pass, you know, which was sort of nice in some ways. And, and I'm kind of surprised some of those things haven't uh, emerged for the, the leisure traveler, let's say. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you buy a pass for four times a year or whatever. Um, and I know David Nealman is, uh, is you know, working on something. But so is this a time where we might see, given gates are available, uh, you know, we might see some new things. What do you think, Doug? I, I definitely think we'll see some reinvention, uh, and and a lot of it'll be more out of necessity. But I think that the shared goal for everyone involved in air transportation, whether it's at an airport or an airline, and all the other businesses that support it, is uh, number one: this industry ne- needs to make people comfortable with air travel again. And as we've gotten so used to being separated from one another we're really having to adjust to a new paradigm, a new reality. And uh, so I think airlines are going to be looking for a way to do that. And you talk about all the ancillary fees. I think that airlines arrived at a pricing structure that allowed them to be consistently profitable. Not everybody was happy about it, but it, uh, it certainly worked for the airlines. I think there's a new challenge and that is how do you achieve some of the things that are important today like social distancing and yet remain solvent as a business. And these are the types of things that I think airlines are still sorting through and deciding on what does that look like? Because uh, in order for air travel to recover, passengers are going to have to be comfortable coming back onto airplanes. Exactly. I I think, you know, and just sort of one last note on the, uh, the routes and, and all that. Um, my hometown of Madison had a nonstop to SFO, I think, for maybe a year, maybe a little longer, mm-hmm. um, you know, which was quite a big deal around here because, you know, then you avoided flying through Minneapolis or Denver, mm-hmm. and it was quite nice. And so I wonder if, um, you know, some of those things, as you point out about international versus domestic, if some of those things may recover faster uh, in the next six to nine months than maybe, um, you know, more flights to London or things like that. Yeah, and it's possible. We're, we're already seeing airlines really retreat to their hubs, mm-hmm. uh, but, uh, uh, and that's good for SFO because we've got, you know, a very large airline that, that uh, operates a hub here. Right. Uh, so I think that uh, as airlines evaluate, and already for the month of July, we're seeing domestic airlines planning to do more flights. And if uh, route was uh, making good sense for that airline before the pandemic, I think they'll look for a way to reinstate that. Yeah. Super interesting. Well, thanks so much, uh, Doug, for joining us today. And uh, hopefully we'll see you soon at SFO. Thanks, Jim.